Welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and with me today I have the Professor. Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Wait, you were dead? Felt like it. This is from the man... I I thought you don't die from man flu, you just get worse and worse. Yeah, you feel absolutely awful for a few days. (laughs) Not Rona though, luckily. So uh, how many how many balls of soup were you given while you were um, trying to get rid of the man flu? Um, well, it was mugs, and I'm going to go with two. Chicken soup? Tomato. Ah, oh, oh, tomato? Yeah. yeah. We didn't have a lot in the house, and one day I'll, like, I've been looking after my girlfriend because she hurt her ankle. <laughs> so, and now I got really sick and couldn't do anything. So I was... <laughs> You know, having to keep on top of things. Luckily, um, when I once I'd been sick for a couple of days, I decided I'd better get a Rona test to be sure. And I got a friend to drop off a bunch of frozen meals. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah, he's a great friend. But so, um, luckily, he didn't have to worry about cooking too much. That's, she, uh, that, that's and me great. out of that. But yeah. one day, my girlfriend made me a tomato soup, and she's on toast out of a cat. The soup, <laughs> not the the cheese. But <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I hope you had a, had a good Easter, though. Yeah, it worked out all right in the end. You got I lots mean, of chocolate, DJ? Oh, I had a lot of chocolate. So many nice chocolate eggs. Because after all, isn't that what Easter's really about? <laughs> well, I, I thought Easter was all about hot cross buns and some guy on a cross. And... No, the day after Boxing Day is all about hot cross buns. <laughs> Seriously, what's wrong with the shopping centres? <laughs> Can you imagine like Jesus coming into the going to like a sh- supermarket and see hot cross buns? Like, uh, guys, seriously, I'm not even dead yet, and you putting out hot cross buns already? What's wrong yeah. with you? Although I did watch Passion of the Christ, and that is one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. Wh- which part get? Which part got to you? Was it the cross or the whipping? Uh, actually. It didn't get to me too much. Obviously, I'm becoming desensitized and I'm going to become a violent serial killer. <laughs> but um, the wasn't that bad. I, like, yeah, it was brutal. Probably the whipping scenes were the most brutal because everyone knows what it's like to slice your finger open on a um, on a disposable razor, and that's like really shallow and like paper cutty. But not everyone knows what it's like to have a giant uh, nail hammered through your hand. Oh yeah. Although it makes Tarantino films look, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it makes Tarantino films look second rate with the level of violence in this. Although I did hear they're going to make a sequel to that movie now. Yeah, they've been talking about it for years. Like, sort of, where do you go from there, really? Like, a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. There's not, like, any hyper-violent event in the 40 days of the resurrection. It's just Jesus going around, hanging out with his mates, and then being like, all right, beam me up, Scotty. (laughs) So I don't know what the the plot is going to be. Like, the whole point of the movie Passion of the Christ is the suffering Jesus went through, and that's why it's so bloody and violent they said uh from what i'm seeing here so gibson implied that part of the movie will be taking place in hell and while talking to yes (laughs) because um before the resurrection jesus does go to hell for a little bit yeah and said that it may also show some flashbacks depicting the fall of of the angels the film will also explore the three-day period starting on Good Friday, the day of Jesus' death. Well, I'm kind of curious, like, how would Mel Gibson represent hell? <laughs> is he going to go for the... I feel like we're turning this into its own topic, though. Yep. <laughs> uh, is he going to go for the traditionalist, um, biblical interpretation of hell? Is he going to go for the Dante interpretation? Oh, and how Dan- gory is it going to be? If he goes for Dante's... Um, Dante's interpretation, man. <laughs> this, this, I can imagine all the uh, reviewers and all the censorship crew will be like, "Bad, this film is bad." <laughs> like, can you yeah. imagine, like the, like the, um, the, the last, the last um, ring? <laughs> oh, that would be so terrifying. Well, 
the only people in the last ring of like last circle of hell, yeah, are Satan, Judas, and Brutus. Yeah, because Dante considered um, betrayal to be the worst crime possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm talking about lust, but not lu- not last lust. Oh, <laughs> um, probably an orgy scene like in Eyes Wide Shut. Oh no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah, let's let's uh, let's, uh, let's we are let's like pers- so far off topic. We went from happy chocolate <laughs> forts to this. <laughs> oh. But um, yeah, speaking of uh, happy thoughts, uh, you've got some. You got a story about demo scene and how it's got a record. It's been recognised by UNESCO. Yes, much happier thoughts than going to hell. <laughs> the um, so the demo scene is basically programmers trying to get the most out of their hardware and making their really limited hardware do absolutely insane things. So you'll have like full 3D graphics rendered on a uh, Commodore 64. Basically, machines that were never intended for this. You get programmers making hyper-optimized graphics programs that show essentially a music video. And the whole trick is about pushing your hardware and getting interesting graphics and music out of this hardware that is really limited. Like, you could do so much more easily with um, modern hardware, but part of the challenge is doing it on this ancient uh, equipment. So last year, Finland decided that the demo scene was part of its national inventory of living heritage. This was based on the campaign by Art of Coding, with the end goal of adding the demo scene to the UNESCO list of, this is a bit of a mouthful, intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Sounds professional sounding. It does. So UNESCO is the United Nations... uh, I thought I'd written this down somewhere. Uh, it's the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Yeah, so one of their uh, most public-facing roles is cataloging features of cultural significance. So there are artworks, uh, historic sites, temples, churches, all of that sort of stuff. And UNESCO has more recently brought up the intangible cultural heritage list. So you can't go to a place and see the demo scene. It's not a building or an artifact. It's code on a antique computer. I mean, you could you could technically do it though. Like you can make it. Uh, you can build a, a demo scene museum. Yeah. Yeah, you could. Oh, I was going to say you can build it something similar to YouTube. Like build a demo scene website dedicated to like showing off. Oh, yep. This is what we can do with an Amiga. But um, again, that's still intangible. You can't reach out and touch the demo scene. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't reach out and touch it, but you can at least watch it. Yeah. Like if you if you make it like into a YouTube-like website and just go, yeah, this is what we've done with an Amiga, check it. Uh, you can watch this go, go haywire and to new levels. So now we've sort of, Art of Coding was pushing for different countries to add it to their own internal list so that the UNESCO would be inspired to add it like you can't just go straight to unesco and say add the demo scene you've got to start with a grassroots campaign but the unesco committee standing conference of the ministers of education and cultural affairs have declared demo scene as german intangible cultural heritage so we're now one step closer to getting it fully on the uh intangible culture list and these people were you know, pushing their hardware so far beyond what it's originally capable of. I, it's really inspiring. I'm nowhere near on the programming that they are. But programming in a really tight, limited box has given these people some really interesting inspiration. And uh, our other host, Debbie Boy, who can't make it this week, unfortunately, or next week or the week after that or for a while. So he's into it more than I am. And I'm going to have a talk to him and see about some of the best demo scene uh, videos both of us have seen to put in the show notes for you guys to check out. I think, you, I think David Boyd showed us some um, before um, 
the news came into being, and man, we were blown apart by that. By yeah, the amount of I was never really into it until uh, Devi Boy showed us. So, you know, I'm still fairly new to this whole area. Although there is some funny news coming out today as uh, we're recording this. The group um, Revision were streaming what they call Revision po- or Demo Party on Twitch. And some automated system in Twitch picked up on that and decided to ban their account. <laughs> Halfway through their uh, their demo party stream. Oh, that must suck so badly. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they haven't seen any news of getting it unbanned on Twitch, but they were picked up pretty quickly by um, the group, or the streaming site. Yeah, I got their... Uh, CCC. Yeah, I got their tweet that said that they were banned off Twitch. Yeah. Yeah, and they're still going at the moment, still streaming demo scene stuff. So sometimes it'll just be a graphical display, sometimes it'll just be music, and sometimes it'll be both combined. But you gotta admit, though, the level of creativity just to get that level of um, artwork in old soft, old hardware is insane. Yeah, and running, like, just a, a handful of bytes. So... One of the common upper limits is 64 kilobytes. And people who do this sort of stuff do projects working on fitting it into the boot sector of a floppy disk or to um, put a game in a QR code using extremely efficient assembly programming. That being said, though, are we seeing the return of retroware? Um, well, it's hard to say return of retroware because it wasn't retro when it was made. But yes, um, particularly things like the Commander X16, um, Monster 6502 is a pretty cool project, but kind of a different um, sector, I think. But there are projects to make retro-style computers that are easily hackable. And I think that will be the next area for um, for the demo scene, because it's getting harder, like, harder to get a Commodore 64 in working condition. So... You can't run your original audio script on the Commodore 64 anymore. You look for uh, a new platform. And I think that's a good choice because uh, for something like the Commander X16 to step in, it'll be a, well, if you don't know, which you probably don't, DJ, Commander X16 is a retro-inspired computer being developed by a team led by 8BitGuy. So the goal is to not be necessarily be a drop-in replacement for a Commodore 64, but a computer that follows many of the same design principles. So it'll be something with a really simple block diagram that you can fit in your head. Modern computers are so damn complex. Mm -hmm. And there's so much going on that you can't look at a modern computer and know exactly what's going on in the computer just in your head. But you can do that with older hardware. So that's uh, one of the goals of the Commander X16 is to produce a product that can replicate that. How do you think this will uh, affect game development? I don't think it will at all. I think there'll be hobbyists who will make retro games. They're already doing that. Um, Although some of the demo scene did move into um, game development. So in Finland alone, there's Starbreeze, Remedy Entertainment, Guerrilla Games and Tech Lab founded by demo scene participants. And you might know them. Uh, So Starbreeze makes... um, Name's completely gone from my head. Payday. Remedy makes Alan Wake, Control, that sort of thing. I don't know Guerrilla Games or Techland off the top of my head. Let's pull them up. Uh, Sorry, so I said they were uh, Finland, but um, no, Guerrilla Games is actually based in in the Netherlands. So, okay, so it's not just Finnish Finnish developers from the demo scene, but you might know Guerrilla from Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, Killzone, well, there are a lot of Killzone games. <laughs> no, it was pretty big back in the day. Big Brother the Game. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a crazy time. 
Yeah. Yeah. TV tie-in games just tend to be a little bit weird. But a lot of game devs, uh, small studios get their start doing licensed games. That being said, though, could you imagine um, game companies coming in and saying, hey, you know what? This we um, this, this looks awesome. Like, let's uh, let's install this on a couple of our on a couple of our um, IPs and stuff. I don't get what you mean. Like, I imagine if Sony were to come in and go, hey, demo scene, that looks really cool. Can you uh, work for us and we'll pay you big money? Um, that might have happened. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head now, but there was a demo scene group who their focus was on things like compression techniques. Bink, that's it. They, they made Bink, which is a... Um, Audio codec, I think. Here it is. Rad Game Tools. That's right. Bink Video. Yeah. They, uh, so Rad are a, a tool who now are owned by Epic Games, but they made tools for developing really well encoded video and audio for low powered consoles. So I'm not sure we could have ever had the sort of uh, video encoding we have on consoles now if we didn't have Rad making these tools. So that's sort of a uh, practical application of demo scene. I mean, I'd love to see more of the demo scene in the, in the uh, modern applications, like can you ma- in music videos and uh, whatnot. But yeah, I think only time will tell. Yeah, it's pretty niche. Like it's a big niche, but the applications and people who are interested in it and uh, still a pretty small niche, I think. I can imagine seeing now like people trying their own version of demo scene. We'll see it in DeviantArt. Like, oh yes, here, here, here we have another demo scene um, attempt. Hey, maybe even Banksy might jo- might jump into the demo scene <laughs> aspect. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's Banksy's kind. Fair enough. Um, anyways, on to the uh, next story. Uh, we've got a story about a prosthetic hand. Yes, yes, I. Even though it's a prosthetic hand, this one comes with feelings. So can it have depression? Nah, it can't even it it, it can't even uh dream electric sheep. But uh, no, it's bad, DJ. It's bad. <laughs> oh no! I was trying to I was trying to make it funny, but I can't. Dang it! So uh, the story goes. Uh, Kevin Walgamot has a good feeling about picking up the egg without crushing it. And what seems terrible. Puns <laughs> are terrible. <laughs> I know, they, hey, tell it to the guy who wrote this, okay? Don't blame me. <laughs> so our biomedical engineers are helping to develop a prosthetic arm for amputees that can move with the person's thoughts and feel the sensation of touch by an array of electrodes implanted in the muscles of the patients. So this comes from the University of Utah Biomedical Engineering Associate Professor Gregory Clark, who developed the way of the Luke arm, named after the Star Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, the robotic hand that Luke Skywalker was implanted with, to mimic the way a human hand feels objects by sending the appropriate signals to the brain. Okay. So that means the amputee wearing the prosthetic arm can sense the... T- and sense the touch of something soft or hard, understand better how to pick it up and perform delicate tasks that would otherwise be impossible with a standard prosthetic with metal hooks or claws for hands. Yeah, because there's no feedback with a traditional prosthetic hand. You don't know what you're touching or how hard you're squeezing really. (laughs) So I've seen robots that are designed to do this before, but this seems to be the first human uh, compatible model. So uh, this one's been developed for 15 years and the arm itself is made of mostly metal motors and and parts with a clear silicone skin over the hand is powered by external battery and wired to a computer. And this was developed by DECA Research and Development Core, a New Hampshire-based company founded by Segway inventor Dean Carmen. Nice to see he's uh, still doing interesting things. Mm-hmm. The Segway wasn't quite as world-changing as he thought it would be, but <laughs> maybe the prosthetic hand will be. So the uh, University of Utah has been developing the system that allowed the prosthetic hand to tap into the wearer's nerves, which are like biological wires that send signals to the arm to move. It does that thanks to an invention by U- University of Utah biomedical professor Emer- Emeritus Distinguished Professor Richard A. Norman called the Utah Saint Slanted Erect. 
Electro, uh, electrode array. This array is a bundle of 100 microelectrodes and wires that are implanted into the amputee's nerves on the forearm and connected to a computer outside the body. The array interprets the signal from the still remaining arm nerves, and the computer translates them to digital signals that tells the arm to move. You know what this reminds me of? I don't know whether you remember this. Remember the episode of uh, Red Dwarf when Lister loses his arm? No, I don't. Oh, that was a funny episode. So basically Crichton installs um, Lister a uh, new arm after it was amputated. And he tells, uh, so, he, so Crichton tells Lister, hand, pick up the ball. <laughs> hand, pick up the ball. It's, 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 it's very, very slow. And, and then after so much like shouting and screaming, he picks up the ball. He goes, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a great improvement on that. <laughs> and then when, and, and then he uh, upgraded the sensors and he says hand pick up the ball and the arm punches right in the face hopefully this one doesn't do that <laughs> but i like how um i, I want to see the, the more practical uh applications to it can you imagine like in the middle of a in, in the middle of an exam and you're stressing and you just want to like oh and you accidentally crash your pencil like, the stress is getting to me. I need, yeah. snap, I need to snap something in half. Well, it could very well be stronger than a natural hand. So <laughs> how long of having a artificial hand would you want before you think, this is pretty cool. Why don't I have two artificial hands? <laughs> Literally the plot of a book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Machine and- Man by Max Barry. <laughs> This guy loses a leg in an industrial accident and decides to start, like, upgrading his body when he realizes how much better the parts are than his natural body. Uh, It does raise a couple of ethical questions, though, in terms of how how, how far can you go? Yeah. Although this whole mechanical hand um, and the extraordinary strength that it might... That it can carry also reminds me of a Red Dwarf, uh, not Red Dwarf, uh, Big Bang Theory episode where uh, Wallowitz is fooling around with the uh, robotic arm, and then the robotic arm accidentally. Uh, how 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 should I rephrase? How should I phrase this? Uh, touches the special spot and t- and grips it hard like a nutcracker. I'd rather you not phrase that at all. <laughs> Can you imagine the Luke arm with that? <laughs> well, hopefully being able to feel and having a better control mechanism would prevent all that. <laughs> oh, can you imagine hugging someone with the Luke arm? And <laughs> just go, ah, you're killing me. You're I feel like you're bringing up all the ways that could go wrong, which are the ways that's not to go wrong. <laughs> Hey, I'm just saying, it, the, the, you have to accept the funny side, of, funny side of life. But being able to feel will help prevent you from having that issue. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. And um, the, uh, what you said um, was echoed. That sentiment is also echoed by um, Clark, where he says, "Just providing sensation is a bleak, big deal, but the way you send that information is also critically important. And if you make it more, but." biologically realistic, the brain will understand it better and the performance of this sensation will also be better. Okay. But yeah, uh, back to the ethics part, does raise a couple of questions of transhumanism and how far would you go to upgrading yourself? Yeah. So eventually, like, if this is indistinguishable from a human of feeling with it, then eventually, you know, why would you keep a regular boring human hand? And not go for a stronger hand, one that you could use for better, um, you know, one that would be yeah stronger, easier to work with. There's a lot of human hand issues that could be replaced, resolved with a robot hand. We just need the tech to get there. <laughs> Imagine never getting carpal tunnel syndrome. Oh. <laughs> Imagine okay. being able to turn a knob like 720 degrees without having to take your hand <laughs> off it. <laughs> I can okay. I know the perfect group of people that would benefit from having robotic hands. Gamers. Can you imagine a ga- Can you imagine them like on keyboards, just like, yes, I am doing this so well, and my hands don't even feel any pain. Yeah, like they don't have to deal with like uh, all the problems of like getting the fingers to um 
getting the fingers down onto the um, I mean, at that point, you can probably just plug your brain straight into the computer. Like, if you can already read your brain to control the um, prosthetic, why not just read your brain to control the computer? Yeah, but a couple of people would love the feel of a keyboard, you know? Like, even without the... Like, instead of, like... if It'd be kind of like cheating, just, like, plug yourself in and just go, all right, yeah, I'm just playing the game with my mind. Like, some people would just love to have the touch, you know, the touch of a keyboard. Like, like look at the mechanical keyboards, for example. Yeah, of course they would, but, you know... If you've got an option to just plug your brain in, then most people are probably going to go with that. Yeah. So, sure, you'll get people who prefer the keyboard, just like you get people who prefer manual cars or who prefer riding with a fountain pen rather than a ballpoint. But I think you'll still get most people going for the more convenient option. Yeah. Although I was also thinking another group of people would be perfect for this uh, kind of uh, situation. Imagine um, combat sports. Oh, that'll be fun. Like, well, I- um, that reminds me of, um, did you ever see Prototype This? Uh, no, I haven't, no. It was a TV show where a bunch of geeks would be, like, given a week to invent a machine that would do a thing. So one episode was a um, endless water slide, and they made this, like, loop that would sit on rollers and roll around, so you'd keep sliding forever. <laughs> Um, one was a, a bed that would wake you up, feed you breakfast, and let you like and give you a shower and dress you. But oh, one of the coolest be... was boxing robots. No way. Yeah, and to control it, they had the uh, operators um, holding controllers, sort of like a, a modern VR headset, but using some other tech, I think. And remind yeah, me of robots um... boxed. Yeah, that reminded me of that. Um, there was a huge Jack movie based on that idea as well, called um, Real Steel. Yeah, as well, something like that. Yeah. So you know, if your brain is effectively transplanted into a bot, then yeah, just go around whacking things, <laughs> with the bot, and keep your human body wrapped up nice and safe. Oh, can you? Oh, you know, be perfect as well. Arm wrestling competitions. Oh no. <laughs> Come on, think of it. It'd be awesome. Just like <laughs> which uh, which company arm is better, Boeing or Tesla? <laughs> Tesla. <laughs> Tesla. <laughs> Elon, call me. <laughs> oh, that would be perfect. <laughs> but um, back to the uh, story though. So, in in addition to creating a prototype Luke arm with a sense of touch, the team is already developing a version. That is completely portable and doesn't need to be wired to a computer outside the body. Instead, everything would be connected wirelessly, given the wearer complete freedom. Although, that being said, though, it's, it's going to be interesting. Like, imagine if, let's say, um, the Luke arms become a popular thing. Can you imagine, like, if someone committed a crime, they'd be like, oh, okay, we um, let's look at the Luke, ar- Luke arms um, surveillance. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Um... Hackers took control of my arm and made me beat a man to death. (laughs) But then the arm would also, yeah, like you say, look at the surveillance. The arm would record like a black box. It would record its movements. Yeah. And how can you imagine? like, clearly he was strangling the man. And (laughs) then you go into court and you're like, I wasn't strangling anyone. I was crushing a cat. Oh, can you imagine like a courtroom? Every de- uh, like the records being shown as evidence. Like, look at the uh, tensile strength of this guy, of this arm compared to the to, to this. And oh, there'll be so much. There'll be so many questions involved in this. Kind of actually reminds me a little bit of uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird*, oh, no. where the crime couldn't have been committed by the suspect because he had a disability. So if somebody has a robot arm, then no, I couldn't have committed the crime because my robot arm isn't that strong because it's brand A and brand A arms only go up to a crushing force of 500 kilonewtons or whatever. Yeah, I could see I, I could see this arm going to sci-fi levels of insanity at this point. <laughs> but yeah. We, we People should, have uh, made their own hobby prosthetics, but this is, you know, <laughs> being able to link it into your brain and feel the touch, so cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if you, like I said, remember with the boxing, can you imagine, like, with the robot arm, you punch someone and you go like, you know, 
this arm feels so natural. I could do this all day. <laughs> like, completely beat everyone in the bar or something. This is so natural. I could do this all day. <laughs> oh, man. It, just, it also reminds me of, um, imagine using your robotic arm to pick up chicks. <laughs> like like how um, Adam Hills does it, uses his amputated foot as, to pick up chicks. I didn't know he does, but okay then. I mean, <laughs> like, would you go on a date with a guy with a cool robot arm? Oh, if if I was, or a, a girl with a cool robot arm? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> this is like a plot to an anime, isn't it? <laughs> well, are they going to start being seen as superior? Oh, you know, like chicks get dig tall guys becomes. Chicks dig guys with robot hands. <laughs> or is it going to end up like Cheryl and Archer? Oh, <laughs> man. This, oh, man. This is. Do you reckon this is, this is sort of becoming like art imitating life in a sense, though, with this, with this whole arm thing? Or do you reckon this is just. This is cool and let's not go into any, any more territories. Advanced prosthetics have been a dream for a long time. So I don't know that it's like that i think just you know it's a goal people have had for decades so of course it cross-pollinates a bit with sci-fi but the advantage of the sci-fi stories is that we can explore ideas like what if you replace your body with a robot part because the robot part just does the job better are people with augmentations better than people without them that sort of thing oh man that just reminds me of um Deus Ex. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's like literally the plot of Deus Ex. <laughs> yep. Oh, We're going to. Oh, that mankind divided. No. Yeah, so you get the idea. Yep. Yep. Anyways, uh, in the interest of time, we should uh, move on to. Yeah, uh, we are going way over time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so the final topic we have is uh, manga spoilers now being copyrighted. So uh, a Tokyo district court has ruled on Friday that unauthorized po- posting of manga dialogue text is considered copyright infringement. Uh, Shoga Kukan uh, has requested information from a spoiler website server provider on a person who had posted nearly the entire dialogue text of a manga without authorization from 29- January 2019 to May 2020. Uh, Judge Yoshiaki Shibata stated that this person's actions constitutes infringement on the copyright of reproduction and public transmission and the court ordered that the person's information to be disclosed to Shogakukan. Now, I started off thinking I wouldn't agree with that, but in this case I do agree because there's a difference between saying Bob dies at the end and between posting the text of the book. Like Even if it's just a dialogue text, that's still a significant part of the story and you're copying it word for word. But it does really, um, like, even if you were to, like, mix up the words and whatnot, it just kind of uh, takes away the context of the death. Like, we see the, we see the well, big... Well, you can go as detailed as you want. You're just giving away a plot element. You're not literally copying out the entire book word for word. Yeah, yeah. It's the difference between leaking the plot of a book and leaking the actual words out of it. One's copyrightable, one's not. Mm. Because I think the justification for giving away a spoiler is that uh, that would fall under fair use because it's a kind of review, but copy-pasting the whole plot wouldn't, right? The whole text, because the text itself, written by the author, is its own thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it keeps on going by saying, while Shogakukan... alleges that the spoiler site has hosted some images from uh, Kegan Omega manga. The court's ruling on Friday was specifically about posting of a dialogue text from 63 chapters without authorization. And the publishers have previously taken legal action against people who posted images without authorization. The uh, publisher's lawyer described the court ruling on the whole on the whole ordeal as epoch mating. Making. I mean, here's the thing, though. Like when it comes to spoilers and whatnot, though. Like, what if it was the creator himself that did the spoiler? Like, let's say, for example, if I want to um, if I want to make more hype about a book, and I write like, "Hey, uh, okay, so here's the creator wouldn't be suing himself for copyright infringement. He wouldn't be suing himself, but it would kind of be like 
it wouldn't be copyright infringement, but it would kind of be like the others would be parroting what I say, and wouldn't would that kind of no, unless the in that case, unless the uh, publisher agreement says that you can't do it, I don't think the author would get in any trouble. Okay, yeah, they said um, the the website um, the. Manga One app um, have said that spoiler websites have become a serious issue and it will take decisive action against uh, against actions of copyright infringement in order to protect authors' rights. Yeah, it shouldn't. I'm interested to see how they apply this because in this particular case, they've gone after the guy who posted the exact text of the book. Yeah. In another case, like if you write a plot summary on Wikipedia... That's okay, as far as I understand it. So I'd need to, you know, consult with a lawyer, obviously, and particularly a lawyer experienced with Japanese copyright law, which I'm not likely to find. <laughs> but Don't use Google. <laughs> don't yeah, use well, Google. I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of Japanese friends. So I feel like this is going to be pretty difficult. Yeah. I think it but comes to- I think the interesting thing will be how they apply it. So yeah. if they then go after every and any uh, spoiler site, that's bad. If they then go after spoiler sites that are actually doing the same as this particular uh, leaker and just copy-pasting text, that's okay because that is a violation. But here's the thing, though. like If you were to, if you were to take away um, spoiler sites... There'll be other avenues that people will use, like uh, they can go to YouTube and just make like a two uh, a one-minute video about what happens in the end, or they could go well, to Twitter, or uh, that's that's a problem. Like already, though, as I've said, that's okay because if you go onto YouTube, or, like you can go on Wikipedia and get spoilers for any book or movie ever made, basically. Not every literally, but you get my point. Yeah. So it's different in that case, because if you go into Wikipedia and look up a book, you can find a summary of the story. If you you can't go onto Wikipedia and get the full text of the the story copy pasted. Yeah, but as I said, like with that. With the whole, if if you were, if you got the whole text copy pasted, like I said, you can make it into a YouTube video and go, okay. Then they'll still the th- go and give you a copyright strike for that. If they can find you, like you can, you can, they like, can probably find you perfectly fine. Mm, mm. That's probably not a problem for them. Yeah, they probably just go to Google and say, "Give me the details for the guy who's leaking spoilers," and Google will hand them over. It's fair. But that's kind of like, uh, but that that takes away the whole I um freedom. And I of- said Google, so now my phone thinks I'm talking to it. <laughs> it does limit, but it does question the whole idea of um internet freedom, though. I mean, like, uh, like at one stage we have to we have to go, okay, um. For those who are who who are not who don't want to wait like a few goddamn months just to, for a manga to end, here's a spoiler for you guys. And uh, like no repercussions whatsoever, kind of thing. Well, there's already no repercussions for spoiling someone, except that if you do it in person, they might punch you in the face. Yeah, I I, I remember the good old Harry Potter um fiasco when that happened. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's God. not like you can go to someone like if you go and spoil it for someone, that's not illegal. If you go go around screaming spoilers it's not illegal unless you're being a public nuisance running around screaming in a public place yeah but it's not illegal it's just not illegal so nobody's going to come after you for it except for the pissed off that you just gave away the ending yeah and honestly i think i'd rather the courts come after me than some of the people i've known (laughs) it's interesting you mentioned that with the courts and stuff because um there was a similar case that happened with uh attack on titan with in regards to the manga, that uh, the publisher for it have made a tweet saying this. Here we go. Regarding illegal upload and pre-release leakage of Attack on Titan, uh, we have begun to take legal actions against several accounts and individuals. We will take measures against illegal uploads of images and text regardless of country. Good, because illegally uploading it is still piracy. I think you don't get it, DJ. Uploading something illegally is piracy. Spoiling it isn't piracy. <laughs> Copy-pasting the entire text 
<laughs> to spoil it for someone is piracy. Do you get it? Yeah, I, 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 I do get it now. <laughs> I don't know how I can make it any simpler. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you there. It's, it, it is piracy, and yeah, it, it does. Yeah, it's bad, and yeah, we need to get stamp it out. And I will tell to every every one of our listeners: do not pirate anything. You do not want to get caught. <laughs> yes, I mean, I'd argue for gray areas where if you can't legally buy something, is the copyright? You know, the company that owns it has disappeared and no one can trace the copyright no one's currently publishing it i'd argue that's a gray area but currently it's illegal so don't do it and don't follow my advice except when i say don't pirate follow that advice so uh you know the world is currently highly against piracy we'll see where things go in the next 10 to 15 years but i don't think we're going to stop uh, we're going to get rid of copyright anytime soon whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up to your own interpretation. Yeah. So, uh, Professor, what nerdful thing have you done while suffering from your man flu? Um, oh, I've been still been playing Return of the Obra Dinn. Oh, yeah. Um, working out what happened to that boat, and it's getting weird. <laughs> How weird it's, are we saying oh, here? Like, Inception weird, or...? Uh, no, not yet. But, like, <laughs> the first hour, I'm, like, really only giving away the first couple of deaths first hour you find a couple of bodies and think it's a mutiny because that's what happened they were mutinying then you find the next body and instead of it being you know a gunshot or a knife wound it's a bloody kraken (laughs) no the kraken no yeah it's um so the plot is starting to get really interesting trying to figure out what's going on with all of that like it's really limited information because you're playing this on the switch aren't you no pc ah um but the game that i haven't talked about before is tin can oh tin can is a major tom simulator your circuit is dead and there's something wrong you're the only survivor of a exploding space station or whatever in a little escape pod flying away there's also a second map which a space station but currently it's just a um currently there's just the escape pod and the slightly bigger space station yeah and as you hang around there you've got to maintain your systems so your oxygen generator will break down and you'll have to repair it before you suffocate or you'll fly too close to a sun and start to overheat so you have to cool your pod down before you cook so it's kind of like no man's sky but crazier yeah it's a survival game and what i like is that it's got a quite detailed um tech support system (laughs) it's i'm playing my job (laughs) so does that mean you get some stereotypical um uh, tech support guy going welcome to uh, welcome to tin can shuttles this is your this is your tech support speaking. Uh, no, there is no um, Indian call center. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a game mode you can play. Really? One of the, yeah, they have a game mode. They call it party mode, where um, one player is operating the pod and the other player has the manual to decode all of the error messages. <laughs> Oh man, can you imagine the number of arguments in the middle of a life or death situation? Like, pull the red button, but the red button is not working! <laughs> yeah. Kind of like, um, keep talking and nobody explodes. <laughs> What's the uh, biggest flaw you've encountered in that game? At the moment, um, I think the, uh, you're kind of limited on what you can do apart from just swap parts and try to work out, you know, work out what you can turn off so that you can keep your other stuff running. I'm still really enjoying it at the moment. Um, and they are working on the, so their, um, their dev blog shows that one of the next few updates will have a sort of electronics workbench where you can take components and go and repair them. So at the moment, let's just replace the component and stuff it in a machine and break it down for spare parts, which you can then use to repair another component by stuffing it in the machine. But the dev blog says that you'll be able to have an actual workbench where you have to go and replace individual parts in the component 
and, you know, repair the motherboard. And that looks really, look, I know it's really dorky, but it looks really exciting. <laughs> but I like that it's very uh, freeform. There's, like, it doesn't hold your hand at all. So if you notice that your oxygen generator is not working properly or your, you know, your pod's getting too hot. So you check, is the uh, liquid nitrogen tank empty? Which currently you're just going to die because there's no, um, currently no way to refill your nitrogen tank. But that's uh, probably something that's going to come. Uh, so, you know, you're, you turn on your machine and it turns itself back off right away. Where is the error? Is the power button broken? Is the... <laughs> power plug broken has the fuse been blown that sort of thing and you can get a feel just by playing for a few turns a few games you can get a a feel for how the components work and what sort of errors will give you particular um you know particular effects that you have to deal with can you imagine the game of among us in the, with this type of level design oh that would be brutal <laughs> Hey, t- hey, Tin Can Studios, if you're listening to us, I think you've got a, <laughs> a potential winner. Yeah, having to fix the fix that while someone's about to stab you in the back, that would be mean. <laughs> It'd be a great space horror game. Yeah, I mean, this is already pretty horrific. Like, when the power goes out and you're even getting slower because the O2's building and you can't see and you're trying to, you know, swap parts around to get your... Equipment back online. <laughs> you That's see, pretty scary. Oh yeah, it just reminds me of that movie. Or when like, you're, you're passing through um, an asteroid belt and oh. you're hearing like it sounds like hail on a tin roof, like ding, 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 and then you hear the hiss of a, a leak, and you're like, "Well, shit!" <laughs> and grab your leak filler and have to try to work out where that is. Oh, it's like the movie Gravity, where you're just like, uh, "What do I do next? Uh, you got to do this and this and this." And fix it before everything happens. Yeah, a little bit that, a little bit the Martian. Ah, yeah. Because one of the, um, like, everyone remembers the potatoes. But yep. a big part of the Martian was repairing and upgrading his gear so they can survive. Huh. So uh, how many Nerdy Beanies out of five would you give both games out of? Uh, Return of the Oprah Din, uh, close to five out of five. Just because it's so unique and wonderful and it's rare that you get a game that's that. Uh, with storytelling that good. Um, but Tin Can, I want to give it five out of five, but I'll probably wait for the final release for that because I am loving it. Uh, there's just, it's a bit buggy at the moment. I have a habit of getting myself stuck in drawers. <laughs> like what I'll stand heck? in front of a drawer and open it and then be like, it'll come out and fuse it with my body. <laughs> so to, to, be, to, to be announced? Yeah, right now I'd give it four out of five, I think, because, well, maybe wait for a sale right now. I think I got it a couple of weeks ago on sale, um, so I'd probably wait for a sale because it's still in development and still has a long way to go before it's... Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, as for me, I went and saw the Snyder Cut! Didn't you do that last week? Oh, okay. I thought you were gonna. Uh, my, uh, I was surprised by that reaction. I thought you were like, "God damn it, DJ, not again!" Well, true. I did ban you from ever talking about it again. So, <laughs> damn. I, I didn't anticipate that reaction, but okay. <laughs> nah, okay. nah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just playing. I went and uh, finished watching X Arm, and oh my god, what ha- what oh, that was an entire shit show. Is it? <laughs> Better or worse? It gets worse. So basically, they go into an auction to try and find, uh, to try and buy all the other X arm parts to try and destroy it. But it goes all haywire, and it gets to the po- and it gets to the point where um, Beta, who is is basically the twin, basically a carbon copy of Akira, the the guy that originally died, and uh, the auctioneer of of this whole auction that goes wrong is basically a clone of his brother that died during the first, um, havoc. 
if I will. Okay. And so <laughs> it gets so bad. And like the the big monster where they have to fight in the end turns out to be Beta hacking into anything and everything and makes himself this gigantic mountain gigantic mountain of wires uh, with the, with his face going, you cannot defeat me. And the best way to defeat him was just um, use a black hole generator and black hole his brain and that's it. And they thought okay. that... Yeah, and, and the final episode was basically, oh, while um, t- technology um, is... Ca- while Beta is gone, technology is kind of replicating his uh, works and becoming more and more evil, where the after where the solution to that is basically let's release an EMP to uh, to all of Japan and destroy technology in the process, <laughs> which they did and, and killed everyone and live everyone lived happily ever after. I feel like you're not being fully honest with me. <laughs> what do you mean? I mean, did they actually kill everyone? Uh, they didn't kill everyone. They just killed tech. Uh, like I said, they they did an EMP and killed it. T- killed the technology of the country, basically. Wow. <laughs> I know. I know. It, it it was like watching a Game of Thrones episode. I know. Uh, I'm just going. What a gigantic cluster flip this episode was. The series uh-huh. was in general. I mean, I gotta admit, the the only good part in that in that whole series was some of the character design, which I, I give it generously some of the character design. The rest of it was just, yeah, this is discount character from this anime. This is discount character from another anime. All just copy and paste it into one thing. And this is why CGI anime is such a bad idea. <laughs> and the message of, of, of this entire anime is basically technology is bad and humans should not be, should be careful of it. That was the major major crux of the entire series. Yeah, screw that. <laughs> um, I would give this uh, series uh, one out of five. Ge- I'm, I'm going to be really generous because it's Easter and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with our shout outs, remembrances, famous birthdays and events of interest. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So uh, on to our shout-outs. Last month was the 30th anniversary of the first graphical MMO, Neverwinter Nights. It was developed by Beyond Software, led by Don Daglo, using their gold box engine and was set in the varied landscape of the Neverwinter region from Dungeons & Dragons. The team has also published offline games on the same engine in D&D setting, which tied into subplots online. Knights ran from 1991 to 1997 on an AOL platform. Did you ever like that game? Never played it. Yeah, me neither. Like, I, I've heard of this game years and years ago, but I was one wanted to go like, fun, fun. But D&D c- continues to be more successful now. Well, this is part of D&D, so. Yeah. It definitely helped, I think. Yeah. I've heard a lot about Neverwinter. Yeah. So on the 31st of March, we saw the 20th anniversary of Black and White. The player is a god who can influence villages and a monster which responds to training and has a personality that adapts based on how you treat it. The lead developer, Peter Molyneux, is known for ambitious games that doesn't quite measure up. But Black and White is was very well received and was awarded a Guinness World Record for the complexity of the AI. Now you've played that one, haven't you, DJ? Yeah, <laughs> I have played that game. And man, that game can eat up a computer. It, it it makes Crisis look normal, like with the amount of process power and game and RAM that consumes, it's insane. Though I would love to see uh, see a twentieth anniversary edition of this game, though, just to see what what re, what would they do on a remaster of this game. I'm kind of curious how well the AI holds. Like, if I had a um, I've seen a couple of videos of it in the past, but. 
never played it myself, but it won a Guinness record. So I want to know, like, does it hold up for, like, virtual pet AI? <laughs> Imagine introducing this game to consoles. Oh, that would have been perfect. Well, I was doing some research and they were planning on it, but it cancelled the port. Yeah, yeah. On the 30th of March, Myra Francis passes away from cancer. Her death was announced by her husband, Peter Egan. He wrote, This is the saddest post I will ever have to make. My wonderful wife, Myra, my friend and soulmate, lost her battle with cancer at 1.30am on Tuesday. This message is for all her followers on her Facebook and Twitter at Egan Myra. She was the most amazing human being. My heart is broken. She's known for sharing the first lesbian kiss on British television with Alison Steadman for their role in the BBC play Girl. She also played Anna Tranter in Survivors and Lady Adrasta in the document uh, in the Doctor Who story, The Creature from the Pit. Yeah, that's a classic one. <laughs> Basically, these tribal people led by Lady Estrada um, live on a planet that's high in vegetation but low in metal. An alien blob creature thing comes to visit and they decide to steal its communicator device and throw it in a pit and then use it as a horrible beast that they use to execute their enemies. Damn, that makes it sound that makes it sound terrifying. Says every sci-fi <laughs> sci-fi novel. Yeah. So um, I remember it being pretty scary when I was a kid, but it's yeah, it's a classic one. It's got, you know, the classic uh, silly Doctor Who costumes and bad special effects but still good the funny part about that um story is the uh the creature from the pit uh i I did a bit of research on that one and it turns out that uh the creature itself um attracted a lot of laughter (laughs) because of the design yeah there's a difference between being six and watching doctor who for the first time and that but yeah it is a silly design. Like, Doctor Who traditionally has silly designs. That's just a thing. And so, uh, here we go. Uh, so it's a, uh, there's a documentary on, on this um, on this as well called... So basically the reference is the phallic appearance of Irato's uh, uh caused uncontrolled laughter in the studio, forcing the producers to add a pair of pincers to the creature overnight. <laughs> I mean, I mean, holy, holy crap! I mean, can you imagine having a creature like that? Like you're you're about to die, and then you look at the creature and you start laughing at it before you die. Yeah. So they definitely didn't laugh in the show. <laughs> they screamed. Uh huh. Um. So Nobel Prize winner Akasaki Isamu passed away at 92 on the 1st of April. He shared the 2014 Nobel Prize for inventing efficient blue LEDs. Each color of LED relies on the different chemical composition to create different wavelengths of light. Akasaki's team created a gallium nitride crystal, which completed the trio of primary colors and allowed full-color LED displays along with many inventions using blue light such as blu-ray initially blue leds were significantly more expensive than other colors and were used as status indicators in high-end products akasaki died of pneumonia so basically we should credit him for all the rgb rgb stuff well yeah actually everything that uses blue led awful because the blue leds are bright and you don't want to use them in your bedroom <laughs> on the other hand like you know it's great tech but yeah i hate that everything has to have blue status lights because it looks fancy hey, doctor i remember doctor who they had that too you know in the tardis if i recall yeah like blue light is cool but it's not cool when you're trying to sleep yeah that's true it does get it does get an annoying yeah so uh, on to our remembrances. Charles R. Drew was an American surgeon and medical researcher who focused on the field of blood transfusion, allowing large-scale blood storage for use in World War II. He resigned from the Red Cross, protesting racial segregation of blood supplies. He was the first African-American to receive a Doctor of Science in Medicine degree. He was recruited not long after the not long after to administer a blood storage and preservation program for blood plasma in the UK. He died in a car accident at 45 on the 1st of April, 1950. 
Um, On to our famous birthday, Sidney Newman, one of the founders of Doctor Who, was born on the 1st of April 1917. He also helped lead the spy drama The Avengers, no relation whatsoever to Marvel's Avengers. Although other BBC staff had major roles, Sidney created both the concept of the TARDIS and the mysterious traveller, the Doctor. It's hard to imagine what the show would be like without those core ideas. Probably something more the early concept of a drama series exploring science and history. He had always been a sci-fi fan saying, Up to the age of 40, I don't think there was a science fiction book I had, hadn't read. I love them because they are a marvelous way, marvelous way and a safe way, I might add, of saying nasty things about our society. <laughs> yeah, Sid- sci-fi is a, a, a commentary on life. You know, commentary on society, commentary on technology. It comes to the point where you have to have to go like, yeah, I get we commenta- we're doing a commentary on modern society, but we don't want to make it as make it as miserable as possible. Like there has to be the sense of wonder and stuff. Oh yeah, what- there's plenty of that. Yeah, but yeah, there's a lot of sci-fi that's um, an allegory for some real life technology. It's true. So uh, Sidney Newman was born in Toronto. On to our events of interest. So on the 1st of April, 1969, the Hawker Siddeley Harrier, the first VTOL, which is an acronym for... Vertical Takeoff and Landing. Yep. (laughs) Thank you. Like a helicopter, but it's got wings. Yep. So it's a... Technically, helicopters are VTOL as well. Yeah. But yeah, this is the first uh, VTOL fighter bomber. Or... it looked. I remember seeing one of those in um in a documentary, and they were really awesome to look at. Yeah, yeah. So these these um VTOL capable fighter bombers were launched into the RAF, and this was the first of the Harrier jump jet series that was developed in the 1960s in response to the British government's policy for the use of long range missiles rather than putting manned aircraft in harm's way. The unique feature of the Harrier allowed vertical flight was a single lever allowing thrust to be diverted to pitch and roll thrusters while manipulating the nozzle angle of the main engine. Although the Harrier is capable of vertical takeoff, it is unable to do so with a full load of weapons and fuel requiring a shorter than normal span of runway to take. The advantage that uh, this is that uh, a Harrier can take off from short improvised runways or a small aircraft carrier without catapult assistance. Yeah, it's interesting. So the Harrier diverts thrust from the engine out through thrusters on the the wings and underside, as well as angling down the rear nozzle. The F-35 angles the rear nozzle and also has a big fan in it. <laughs> like, there's literally just a, a cover that opens up and there's a massive fan. Oh, that, that must blow straight through the middle to lift the nose up. But I like the whole idea of of just doing um, vertical air vertical flight uh, in itself. I mean, that that in itself, I don't I'm, I don't see that in many jets anymore. Like it's no. always just like, can you imagine seeing air aircraft airliners doing vertical flights now? I doubt that would happen because it's just too um, inefficient taking off like. VTOL is really inefficient. You need a ton of thrust. Since taking off a VTOL style, you're using only thrust to get you off the ground, like a rocket. Mm-hmm. You're not using the lift from the wings at all. So that's why uh, it's so much more efficient and faster to fly fixed-wing aircraft. You can actually glide. Uh, like You can glide a bit in a fixed-wing aircraft if the engine goes out, which is a kind of important safety feature. Can't do that in VTOL mode. Uh, You're not really going to glide if your Harrier fails in VTOL. But the other, like, major issue with it is that you just don't have any lift coming from the wings. All of your lift comes from your thrust, so you need a bigger engine running harder. Just take off with wings. It's easier. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And uh, finally, on April Fool's Day, 1957, the movie Kronos released in US theaters. And here's the plot. Three scientists investigating an asteroid impact discover a giant machine. One of their colleagues is possessed by ele- alien electricity. Yes, you heard it right. Alien electricity. And begins driving a 100-foot ro- tall robot towards Los Angeles. 
The movie became a cult classic for portraying the consequences of overconsumption of resources and features George O'Hanlon, who later voiced George Jetson. And and uh, the funny part is, if you if you ever see the movie, prepare to laugh at the robot design. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> it was boxes. It, it looked like the android. It looked like the android logo. Partly because it's got the dome shaped head with the two antennas. Yeah, but the android logo doesn't have any boxes on it. <laughs> oh, but the the funniest part was alien electricity. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's all we have for this week. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that'snotcanon.com, where we archive of our old episodes. And you can also find new podcasts such as The Curiosity of a Child, which is basically a TNC podcast. And the story goes like this. We are a, we are a son and a father um, who are curious about, well, everything. The more you look at the world, the more you understand, and then the more you can see. We like to dig into different topics, everything from the humble ox. It's re- it's been really important to the development of mankind, but Anton did have to learn what castration is. Oh, to- no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, to the most popular Christmas toys of yesteryear, including actual firing guns, a hideous doll that could bite our fingers and a pet rock. Okay. So it's basically a father-son um, podcast talking about all cool things back in the day. So yeah, check him out. And uh, yeah, we've also got a YouTube channel where we'll be posting up some new content, hopefully. And uh, give us a f- subscribe and like and uh, check out more, hopefully. Yep. So, uh, that's all I have for today. Time for me Look to bugger off. Stay hydrated. Uh, time for me to bugger off now. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.